Exits for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to Excess for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics Marvelous Mutants week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Of course, Excess for Podcast has a sister show, and that's over on YouTube, The Daily X, where you can catch more segments just like this running every day straight to your subscription. Now, one of the things we've sought to do in this last year is really expand our coverage of the Marvel Universe from just the X-Men to Marvel Mutants at Large. And this episode might not feature X-Men titles and numbers that are currently coming out, but whether it's thematically or by character, these stories correlate directly to what's going on on Krakoa. First up, we're going to be taking a look at the most recent issue of Jason Aaron and Torin Grunbeck's The Mighty Valkyries. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm a huge Thor fan, as well as specifically an enormous Jane fan, and this last few years has been such a wealth of material for her character, especially following War of the Realms, where we have seen 16 issues of Jane as Valkyrie come out with plenty more to come. Hopefully, Jason Aaron and Torn Grunbeck are far from over with this incredible story, pairing together two incredible characters, the familiar Jane, and a much newer Valkyrie in sort of the form of a analogous version of Tessa Thompson's character from Ragnarok. Hopefully, you guys love this segment as much as we enjoyed making it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Exes for Podcast. I'm Nathan. You can find me online on Dazzler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter, Twitter, Twitch and Instagram at Drantis82's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And I'm Nico, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T, and we hope you survive the experience. Kind of, sort of, unlike, kind of like the point of the book, Valkyries, dead people. Like, you're not really supposed to survive a Valkyrie book so much. So, I guess I kind of, yeah, yeah, okay, I hope you guys survive, but not the Valkyrie people. Right, well, well then you got more who's, like, kind of dead to begin with, but, like, they're not dead, so, like, does he survive, do they survive? Survive? Do they not? I don't know. Whatever. I want to be like a Loki drag queen, and I want to sit there and be like, mm, "I'm sorry, darling, but more is less this season." <laughs> oh, just, like, like a Loki drag queen? Oh my gosh! I just need it. I need it so bad. But like, I need to be like a really intense lady Loki drag queen, Ooh. right? Like, I, I want to like, I want like the divine makeup on it. Okay, oh. okay. I Ooh. I'm all for that. <laughs> I I definitely want to see that now. Uh, yeah, like, um. <laughs> So before we talk about the story, so I, I know I've had Kyle with me this whole journey for the Valkyrie saga with the return of the Valkyries and the mighty Valkyries. So Nico, you're a little newer to us with this. So tell me, what is your experience with Jane and what is your experience with uh, the Valkyrie series so far? Have you been loving it? So what's my experience with Jane Foster? That's a great question. Um, I've made no secret about the fact that my dad actually thinks he's Thor, right? Um, sort of like there's that lady whose dad thinks he's Ringo Starr, right? But my dad's right. And so then my mom's name is actually Jane. So like growing up, my dad was a huge Thor fan and he married a Jane. So like Jane Foster was like part of our family myth. You know what I mean? Like the, the sort of stories you guys tell that are the fiction that bond to your family unit. For a lot of families, it was Star Wars. For a lot of families, it's Disney. A big thing in my family was Marvel, and Thor and Jane were always a large part of that. I've read 
an extensive amount of Jane's appearances uh, by virtue of the fact that Jane really doesn't have as many appearances as one might think, as Jane has, to this day, altogether, ever appeared less than 450 times in the Marvel Universe. Holy jeez, that is crazy, especially when you consider how many of those appearances have to be recent, and she's from the 60s, though. That is exactly what I was about to get to, dude. Great read. As a matter of fact... Let's use the fact that Thor Ragnarok kind of out of reality for a little while, right? And let's use the return of Thor in the form of the Civil War, Fantastic Four, JMS Thor complex, right? That whole period of like 2006 to 2007. She has less than 150 appearances before that. Wow. Wow. So when I say I've read pretty much every original appearance of Jane Foster, I'm not bragging as much as there's really. <laughs> not a lot right and part of that is because thor is always fucking off world right back in the day thor was always going to some planet some fucking where right now i had come into my marveldom around the time of new x-men and you know that was just kind of like x-men for me but it got bigger and badder with avengers and new avengers and so when civil war happened i got to be live part of that event and then lo here's jane foster making this minor appearance in civil war and it changes everything for me because this woman I love is back and I'm like what's up and I'm so excited about it and her journey into the spotlight and into becoming Thor is one of my favorite epic runs of all time I'm just about finishing up my Jason Aaron Thor reread because I was so excited about this series I've read all of her stuff as Valkyrie at this point and I reread the return of the Valkyries one through four and the first issue in this one so I feel like I'm in a pretty good Jane space right now uh, I'm pretty pretty psyched yeah, I feel like you're like our Jane historian, and it's like crazy that we've never had you do the Valkyries with us. So, yay, I'm glad we have you. So awesome. I do um, what I can. I think I might have been on a different version of the first issue. Like, I think I might have had Kyle and someone else with me for the first one at some point, and we talked a little bit about it or something. Because, yeah, I, I came to realize I'm the guy who makes the schedule, and I haven't talked about Jane this year. <laughs> <laughs> unacceptable nico it's lemon crab levels of unacceptable i know well we have remedied that so all good all right so the mighty valkyries so the jane story is written by jason aaron and teron gronbeck with art by matia de Ilias. the runa story is written by teron gronbeck with art by erica derso and the colors by marcio Menez. all right so letters by bc's joe sabino uh the cover artist is matia de Ilias. And the variant cover, which is beautiful, is by Peach Momoko, uh, which I absolutely love. And we had a blast covering Demon Days. And I'm so looking forward to Demon Days Mariko. So, yes. And it seems like every time I look at the, the previews listing, I'm like, I'm getting like that, that hardcore BDDE. And that's, you know, big Demon Days energy. And I'm so fucking psyched. And I see, there it is, Demon Days. And I'm like, yeah! oh, no, it's printing number 37. <laughs> what? The first one. This thing just keeps selling the fuck out, and every time they do another printing, there's variant covers, and like the next issue isn't coming out until June or, or July or something, and I feel so bad because uh, longtime X is for podcast contributor Tori came on to do the first issue. You know, she's an anime uh, sort of expert. She's been drawing in manga style for decades, and it's you know a huge part of who she is. She's very connected to Frank Miller's Wolverine as well. So you know, this was a good piece to bring her in on, knowing that there's going to be Mariko, and she. 
she keeps being like, did you guys just drop me from the project? And I'm like, no, the project <laughs> dropped us. Uh, and she was so good in that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I can't wait for her. Right? Uh, I know. I'm like, oh. All right. So the second issue starts with Carnilla taking a stroll through hell. Her description of it is actually a surprise to me. The idea of hell being a mundane afterlife for most is fascinating. It's not a place of torture. It's just a place of the status quo. A place where nothing begins and nothing ends, as she puts it. Is this shift in perception on the Asgardian hell a huge change for your understandings of it? For me, no. Um, I always assumed that the idea of hell as torture was more of a Christian creation. Um, it was my understanding that the um, the Norse belief of hell was not tied to that uh, torture. It was more of a just a place where you exist after. Yeah, and I really understand where you're coming from because I feel like, especially uh, polytheistic pantheons, really didn't dwell too much in the absolute. They really weren't all about that's good, that's evil. But as I have, and I, you know. I love him for what he gave to the world, but I got to poke a little bit of fun at Stanley for a minute. Who the fuck thought that Norse gods would speak this sort of Shakespearean meets Middle English nonsense? <laughs> They're Norse gods, and for some reason, they're running around saying, Hi, ye have at upon thy countenance. And if I can, why does Hercules speak the same way? Why do every god in the entirety of and you know it, it's really funny because it just to, like to, it's kind of right neil gaiman wrote that beautiful work on norse mythology which actually had contributions from Alyssa quitney then a friend of the show big fan uh everybody here of her work right oh yeah and so you know he also is famous for sandman sandman which is of course probably in many ways best known for a midsummer night's dream and the tempest it's two shakespeare issues so you know this idea that shakespeare Shakespeare and Norse mythology kind of go hand in hand for a lot of creators. A lot of people kind of see the 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 regal tragedy drama of of Shakespeare in the gods, right? So I get it, you know, I'm there. But the idea of this that hell is torture in the Marvel universe, like it's been depicted as such since yep. the 1940s. Actually, if you take a look at the timely comics version of Marvel from before the Atlas era, right? You know, these sort of classic pulpy stories did kind of play with demons and monsters and some of those characters have crossed over to the Marvel Universe with a connection there so theoretically some iteration of the Marvel Universe had an iteration of hell that was you know doom fire and brimstone heads on sticks and stuff so I feel like Jason Aaron and now Torn Grunbuck who has joined his ilk is or both are looking to forge a more realistic to what Asgard should be iteration especially in the wake of Ragnarok we We've seen that you can do Thor real fucking weird without sacrificing Asgard. And I think Jason Aaron has been on a quest to make Thor a little bit closer to grounded in true mythology. And so, yeah, you know, it did shake my understanding of Marvel's definition of hell. Because, you know, just as recently as the Aaron Del Mundo run, we sort of saw hell as like Balder riding in and being like, ah, ha, ha, the land of the dead. And so, yeah, this was both a yes and a no in a really I said it for way too long way <laughs> <laughs> yeah because I'm just I'm just remembering the second Asgardian arc in the New Mutants where uh, they have Danny go back and that's when she leaves to stay with the Valkyries but 
hell is very much in that run presented as a sort of like one of those dark seedy underworlds where there's a lot of hell going on but like you said ragnarok did reset a lot of everything with asgard so I, i'm kind of loving this iteration of it and i'm loving that it's going a lot closer to the mythology <clears throat> so the presentation of carnilla is the sole queen of hell only coming to the place for the love of hella not through a sense of duty or power is fascinating so i got a question what do you think their courtship was like like what do you think dating the queen of hell dating the ruler of hell hella what do you think that was like my read on this is i you know i i hmm, there's so much that i kind of like hand wave in a lot of ways like if you ask me how i'm doing no if you ask me how this loki you know charming hey what's up i'm you know, like tom hiddleston hey let's <laughs> hang out on this rooftop with my wolf grandchild my wolf grandchild my demon two person eyeliner wearing motherfucker wolf grandchild <laughs> okay so i can't make this loki be that loki I can make this Loki be Kid Loki because I can make anything be Kid Loki. Kid Loki gets me through, right? But, like, I can't I can't make this Loki be that Loki. So I don't think I would be able to make this Carnilla be with this Hell. I feel like, for me, there's a sort of sense of removed that I allow myself to be for anything that kind of pushes the boundaries of that legend. It's also worth noting that Carnilla and Hella are only together as a byproduct of a plot contrivance sort of situation. Not a bad plot contrivance, but an element of the build-up to War of the Realms. So that does play a factor. Um, so I'm going to be honest, I really don't have much knowledge about Hela or Carnilla, so I'm not really sure how their personalities work. <laughs> um, a lot of grr, a lot of arg. A lot of yeah. grr, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I honestly don't know how they, uh, would have gotten together. <laughs> well, Nathan, if you yeah. ask that question, it kind of tells me that you've got some vibes on it, so I gotta know. I gotta know what your brain did. That you were like, I have to know what they thought too. Well, I'm I'm just sitting here imagining them going to like these epic Renaissance festival style dates where they're like out there just fighting the hordes of hell or fighting the hordes of you know some evil thing or out there uh, you know and then they sneak a little kiss after the battle and then you know maybe they go to a romantic dinner afterwards you know I don't know Asgard's probably got some really nice romantic places to go so I'm just I'm just trying to figure out in my mind how you would date the regent of hell like hella doesn't seem like the most um how do i want to the most soft-hearted person like i don't imagine hella after a big battle leaning in to give carnilla a kiss you know kind yeah, of I'm, thing. I'm i'm really with you on that i'm imagining carnilla comes home and she's like hey babe i had a really long day and what i need right now is for you to take care of me. And Hela just stands right up and she summons her headdress about her. She points in Carnilla's face with one of her long, gnarled, perfect fingers and she says, Yes! It is to the Olive Garden we go for a baby! <laughs> Like, I can't imagine this. Like, I kind of can, clearly. But I I do get what you mean. This domesticated bliss is, like, a a little far-fetched for these two characters. 
So, 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 <laughs> just the idea of Bella at Olive Garden. Like, is she out there? <laughs> is she out there ordering the fried lasagna for the appetizers? Is she oh, it's like, peach bellinis. It's peach oh, bellinis all day. Okay. Lemon she, cake. Yeah. Lemon cake. Uh huh. Uh huh. And she's really in it for the Zupa Toscana soup. And like, <laughs> it looks like vitriol and bodies. Like, you know, she's really about it. She likes her hearty slaughter. So, um, oh, and she's a big fan of chicken gnocchi. There's just something about it. It's just the right planned so uh i want to write this and um, <laughs> carnella seems like more like the unlimited soup and salad and breadstick kind of girl and like if she's good if she knows it's good for her she's gonna ask to get a box for like four more breadsticks they heat up great who is gonna deny the queen of hell that too you know i want to know that so. i want to know what olive garden <laughs> server is foolish enough to decline her her breadsticks <laughs> uh ma'am we don't usually let you oh wait you're carnella okay <laughs> go ahead i'm i'm really into this this Olive Garden as oh my god an Asgardian Olive Garden oh my god it's Olive Asgard <laughs> <laughs> Olive Asgarden is my new favorite restaurant and uh, I, I, just, I just can't stop with Olive Asgarden now and like Thor is a server but he's like in the tightest little pants because he wants a tip and like he's got the hammer hanging off of the side of his apron okay and, too much. And, and Thor and Baldur have like that you know that relationship like Tori Amos has with the waitress in the song Waitress so like I love it Baldur's literally sitting there biding his time to get that coveted <laughs> 5 to 9 cover <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm this is not that this issue wasn't fantastic because these were some of the most this was some of the most enjoyable rereading I've done in a really really long time but uh, this is fire <laughs> oh my god yeah this has to happen <laughs> <laughs> Um, let me move it back to the story. Okay, so um, Carnilla performs a ritual that unleashes more from being stuck in hell in the cradle of life. What was once barren is now slowly regrowing. So what do we think the repercussions for Carnilla are going to be for performing this ritual? As she mentioned, she made a choice. You know, Kyle and I were chatting a little bit online earlier, right? And we were talking about how we're, you know, we're super positive on the book. Kyle, you'd mentioned you're like, the Carnilla stuff seems a little too too much. And I kind of feel like all the Carnilla stuff and the fact that, you know, we have more, right? What a <laughs> choice name for a character. Right. So the fact that we have this character of more and we have Carnilla's babies, I can't help but wonder, since we just saw all of that trauma that Jane experienced in reimagining her son, mm -hmm. that now oh. here we are with the children of gods and it's being played out in two different ways. A god who long ago made a mistake that resulted in these sort of evil children that are one maybe evil person child man either way cool. he absolutely looks like he's on his way to a my chem concert and yeah. mm -hmm. then we have like you know these little baby gods and i feel like this carnilla story is going to play into some sort of sense of motherhood some sort of sense of allowing a more feminine a more feminine approach to these characters in because one of the things that i feel aaron has sought to do is aaron has sought to keep thor from ever being he, one of the things aaron sought to do was to never allow thor when it was helmed by jane to become a book about a woman it was about a god she was a woman sure but it was never like millie the model has to go buy tampons it was like <laughs> thor she 
is a god, and that's fucking cool, right? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there were, you know, realistic, mundane things to it, but, and now we've seen Jane have that journey of motherhood and missing her son, and I feel like through Carnilla, we're going to get to see a really feminine exploration of a lot of these ideas in a way that Aaron has sought to avoid in order to maintain and secure the authenticity of a man writing a female Thor who has now become the Valkyrie, and I feel like it's a really carefully, it's a really meticulous move, I feel. And I guess those are my feelings on this <laughs> It's been a long journey for Jane <laughs> and her child. And guys, I can't help but feel like this time we've really hit it out of the park. No, I accidentally deleted the ballpark! No! Wait, I feel like it, this time I feel like we really hit it out of the drum solo. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, for me, the fact that she's pretty much rebuilt this cradle of life in the middle of the afterlife, I'm I'm kind of wondering if we may see other other characters start to return as a as a result of it. Um, Ooh. Yeah. Um, I I'm not sure where things currently stand, but I have a feeling that. Carnilla's kind of trying to hide it from Hella. I'm not sure oh, how yeah. well that's going to oh, go. Oh, obviously. Yeah, obviously, yeah. I don't know how well that's going to go um, because it, it kind of looked like it was flowing out of the cave. Um, <laughs> I mean, there were flowers growing in Hell. Yeah, so yeah. That's going to be hard to hide. Right. And, you know, I... Kyle, you said something really, like, mad poetic, right? I just wanted to... You said that they're building this cradle of life in the world of the dead, and I can't help but think that Marvel may take a look at the fact that the Krakoan reincarnation process has gone really well, and fans are really responding to it really positively. What if the way that... I mean, like, Marvel has really been doing away with a lot of old canon in favor of newer canon, Mm -hmm. or updates to that canon lately, and... To find out that nowhere the the head of the dead celestial was actually the celestial that Null beheaded, you know, like there's a lot to it. So having this whole idea of they just destroyed this celestial that created uh, a black hole, sort of in the afterlife, all this time that we just weren't aware of because Null was sitting and biding his time. I wonder if they are going to try and find a way to create some sort of cradle of life engine that allows heroes to return in a very we don't need to keep coming up with these over-the-top resurrections when we bring someone back they can journey back like i wonder if that might be something they want to give the avengers or the asgard characters so they're not constantly coming up with cloying resurrections oh and it would be really good for jane to obviously her job is a carrier of the souls to valhalla but she also did have that arc in the last valkyrie series where death was on its death was on death's doorstep itself and she had to pull in some really cool characters like Excalibur and Mannequin to try yeah. to heal death. So that was, that's actually a mm. really good idea. So, you know, it would be a really great opportunity to cement this character who Marvel's about to put an unfathomable amount of fucking money behind. You know, I don't want to ever insult the quality of what they did for Captain Marvel or Black Widow, ever, because I never would. Giving Captain Marvel a movie out of nowhere was the right thing, but her name is literally Marvel, right? Mm-hmm. And giving Black Widow a movie, well, you know what? She was technically like the third Avenger we were ever introduced to, so she fucking deserves it. They're having one of the most recognizable sex symbols in the world pass his hammer off. There's just
just really know and to a character who hasn't really been featured outside of reused clips that were on the cutting like all of her appearances in Endgame were cutting room floor clips from Dark World not a single moment was new footage mm-hmm. and so we've gotten so little Jane in the last few years that Marvel taking this chance and saying okay Taika you are the man you are in charge what's next and he said the woman the woman is in charge the woman is next you know this is such a an important moment for Marvel, I wouldn't think that they would build Jane up that much and not have a permanent home for her waiting in the Marvel universe. Yeah, I definitely agree. They're they're really pushing Jane a lot, and I'm I'm really hoping that we get to see a great growth for her in pretty in all of their um media ventures. Yeah. Oh yeah. Property wide. Property wide, yes. Let her be Carol Danvers. <clears throat> you say let her beat Carol Danvers? Let her be. Oh, no. oh my be. God. I was like, no. No girl <laughs> no, fight. No, no. Yes. Yes, Let girl fight. But no. No girl fight. <laughs> that voice. Okay. <laughs> it's hard because like, I would never want to see them girl fight, but like we've seen Cap throw down with Iron Man. We've seen Thor throw down with Hulk. I want to see Thor wielding the mother storm of Mjolnir throw down with Captain Marvel. Like that's going to be fucking glorious, but like I don't want to see a girl fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's really yeah. tough because that would be epic. Well, like she did like kind of like she caught his hammer and stuff. So, but anyway, so we go back to day where Jane and Moore are at more of a detente than in battle. Moore senses a duality in Jane that they feel in line with their own. Do we think that the duality of Jane makes her a stronger hero, especially in her role as a Valkyrie? I think so. I, th- I think it's kind of the same with how Danny was a Valkyrie. She has that human nature that can sympathize with those that she's trying to save. And using her Valkyrie powers, it's, it's just just as as a mortal she un- she best understands the the needs of of being a valkyrie yeah. and it's you know i'm so glad danny came up good job because i meant to message you when i reread those pages for the episode a day or two ago but when i got to danny fighting null and danny saying to null what a pathetic universe this oh, what a what a sad universe this is if you are a god she said that to, <laughs> to null Oh my god, she's so cool, right? She's so cool. Holy jeez, yeah. She's about to die. She literally believes she is at death's door, and she sees a flying horse, and she says, Brightwind, I knew you would come for me in the end, and like, I thought I was gonna just sob on my tablet, and then it's Jane, and Jane Foster extends a hand, and it's just like, ah, that is... That's just like the magic of who Jane Foster is. And there's a reason I I set it all up that way. Because Jane Foster spent the first 40 years of her publishing, and for that matter, the first 38 years of her life, being special around more special people, right? Jane's always been special in a support way. Do you think the brilliant Dr. Jane Foster really got noticed while Thor was running around, right? As her career was Mm -hmm. constantly, just as it's mentioned here, now that she's a 
mortician instead of a doctor. And it's because she, as they point out, is now unreliable because she's a Valkyrie. Do you think her career thrived the way it could have if she wasn't constantly getting embroiled in all of these situations? No. Jane Foster is used to playing an important support role. You know, she really, unfortunately, for many years, represented the adage, behind every good woman, there is a trail of men. Wait, no, it's the other way. Behind every good man, there is a woman. Right. So she really, you know, really, truly proved that adage for a really long time. And now who she is in uh, the first issue of the 2018 run of Hulk. No, in the first issue of the 2018 run of Thor, there's a scene where Thor is holding a new hammer and Jane sees it and she's not allowed to turn into Thor at this point. Like it's it's a no-no. And she's looking at the hammer and she's like, ooh, I wonder how it flies. Tell me, tell me about the uh, the waiting on it, the aerodynamic. Can I just touch it? Just a little touch, just a little itty bitty touch. And Thor has to be like, are you cancer free? No, then you can't touch the hammer. But like she went from always being like, oh, carry me when you fly. That's fine. I, I just need to help however I can help to being the one who could fly and her descriptions of loving the feeling of flight, the descriptions she gives of the unbearable lightness of knowing that she is everything she will need to be to save the universe. Like, holy shit. I think that duality, the woman who always knew how to stand behind the hero, who became the hero, I think that duality makes her so much more than almost anybody in the Marvel Universe. She really, she's a Jean Grey. She's a Magneto. She's any of these characters who went from utterly powerless with nothing that would ever help them again. They had been special, whatever, but now it's, they're broken. Their world is broken to a god. And like, it's it's just spectacular. So like, yeah, I really think that duality is what more is seeing. And, you know, I love you bringing up that point of Jane. Jane, while she had cancer, every time she transformed into Thor, it set back her treatment. So not only was Jane just in general as being Thor herself, putting her life at risk, every time she transformed, she was actually putting her life more at risk than just being in a normal battle, um, which is crazy when you consider, obviously, she is a physician and a healer in, in, in her nature. So it, that speaks a lot to her duality right there, too. And, you know, you just mentioned, like, I can't believe I didn't even think about making that connection. You say the moment, you know, that she when she transforms into Thor, that moment resets her to back where she was when she became Thor. So every time she turns into Thor, she's reversing her cancer treatment significantly. She's purging all of the chemo from her body, right? And there's this scene oh. where she's dying in bed and she knows she has to wield the hammer to save the day. And one of the things that makes that, that scene so powerful, knowing that she's signing her own death warrant, is she interacted with the hammer in a way no Thor ever has. When Jane interacts with the hammer, within the hammer, she hears the power of the hammer. The hammer has a consciousness. It's not just Mjolnir and it's not just a weapon Thor throws. It is the mother storm. It is the first greatest storm ever. And it is trapped in this hammer for all time because it is too great to be out of the hammer. And she unlocks that in this weapon that we've known for 50 years. But only Jane, with her unique duality, with the special woman that she is, is able to communicate with the mother storm and forever change the magic of Asgard. You know, as readers, we understand the, the, the hammer differently. That's where the glowing blue thunder hammer came from. It's the manifestation of the mother storm. So I just feel like the things that make Jane special make her so special. It's it's sort of a joke that she can be one of the most underappreciated Marvel characters and sort of for 
forgotten as a Thor girlfriend when she redefines the entire franchise for him. We jump to Runa's story in the middle of the book, making it feel a bit more of an integrated story than last time. Runa's rescue of Kavasir, the Oracle, is fraught with danger and action-packed. Do we think that this new Valkyrie's personality, Runa, is so much more tied to action and adventure than Jane's, as Jane's story is shown in a lot more of a thoughtful and philosophical way, and Runa is just straight out there action and adventure all the time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, I think it, it's it's more of she's been stuck inside that celestial for so long that having the opportunity to take action like this is just it's such a good opportunity to be different from what she had been experiencing for however long she's been stuck in there. Um, and she she went there looking for an answer, and she found somebody who needed help. No, she is. She is. And I love, I love, I know we talked about this last issue, but Nico, you weren't on last episode. So what are you feeling with the, actually the duality of the art? So we've got two different artists on these two different stories. Do you think it helps tell that completely different story for both of the stories? Uh, you know, and I think it's a really, I think that's a really valid question because i i really do think of these as two pretty distinct stories i see how they have interplay but they don't feel too much more bound together than say percy's wolverine and x-force right so i feel like there is an interplay but i'm treating them as two stories because the truth of the matter is the market won't support two valkyrie titles at once but you've already created this dynamic new valkyrie in jane and you've created a dynamic new valkyrie in a visual imitation of tessa Thompson, and I think it would be foolish not to have both. If the market won't sustain two titles, why not use those titles cleverly to create a duality? I think the art really does kind of crowbar separate them a little bit because they look different enough. Too often, I think the stories have a very homogenized feel, but uh, Aaron's Thor has been doing two stories with two different artists going back to the original volume of God of Thunder. So, you know, this really feels like an Aaron stamp and and I feel like it's being used exquisitely. Now, what Jane had mentioned before when she was talking to Moore before we got into the Runa story, with her being the only Valkyrie besides Runa left, do we think they are going to try to reignite the whole of the Valkyrie core, I guess? All of the Valkyries, uh, like they tried to do in previous titles, like the Fearless Defender? Hmm. I think so. Um, I, I don't think that they're going to bring back the ones that we're familiar with. I'm hoping that they will maybe... Um, um, introduce new Valkyries to fill those roles. Um, I, I I think it's it's a large lot of it is tied to what's happening in in Hell with that Cradle of Life. I also Ooh. think it depends on the corporate synergy strategy. Unfortunately, with uh, Thor: Love and Thunder coming out a year from now, I would imagine the big Thor ramp up will be about nine months from now. Of course, I don't know how they're going to manage to cram in another Thor event. He was a driving factor, his Angela story in Original Sin. He was a driving factor in War of Realms. He had a large part through, he has a large part throughout the current Avengers run. So I feel like we haven't really had enough space from Thor to do another Thor event. But at the same time, I feel like Donny Cates doesn't go on a book without there being a big plan. So the fact that Donny Cates 
Yates is on Thor doing some crazy stuff. I feel like we are likely to see a Thor resurgence in about nine months that the Valkyries will be a part of. As to whether or not they're going to form a core, I think that actually depends on the success of both the film and the line-wide event. Now, we're talking about corporate synergy. Do we think, it's a little off topic, but do we think it's important that the Phoenix Force has been named as Thor's mother now? Yes. Wait, what? Yeah, the Phoenix Force (laughs) is Thor's mama. So for the last five or six years, Aaron has constantly been hinting every time Thor and, sorry, every time Odin and Phoenix show up in like uh, the Aaron Avengers or Aaron's Thor, there's this stuff where, you know, Phoenix, the Lady Phoenix, like Grand Lady Phoenix from the prehistoric Avengers. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, but Odin, if he only knew. I guess she also goes with Odin to Red Lobster, uh, you know? So, like, (laughs) Red Lobster. Wait, wait, wait. wait. There's there's Olive Asgardian and Red Lobster in Asgard? Holy shit. Yeah, so they go go to Red Lobster. and They really need to get some better, some more high-quality chains, I think. Hey, the X-Men already have the Outback. Okay, X-Men have the Outback, that's right. <laughs> so uh yeah they keep hinting and there's all this but she might be your mom stuff and it, it's it's pretty it, it's pretty there so it's 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 definitely interesting i don't i love it i mean i think it's silly and fun and why the fuck not like yeah. that's that's kind of my problem sometimes when people are like oh that's a dumb reveal i'm like sure but what was there wasn't necessarily better and i'm excited for what a change could bring if the change doesn't go well just change it again it's a 60-year canon it can't remain unchanging right i'm just looking forward to like the step sibling series where they have thor and rachel summers you know just have to team up and like get over their weird mommy issues so oh man and like gene wants no part of that <laughs> No. <laughs> no. Gene's like, bye. Gene is like, I, I'm i going to get dragged into this Phoenix shit again soon enough anyway. Let Echo have it. So, oh, poor um, Gene. I know, which has actually been really fascinating Heroes Reborn. So I love where they're taking that story. Back to Jane and Moore. We suddenly realize that Moore isn't responsible for the horrific death that Jane heard about in issue one. But Craven the Hunter is. What do we think about this reveal? And what? Do we think about Craven the Hunter as character himself? Woof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, definitely. I would love to chain him up and yeah. show him why he might be daddy, but I'm Dom. That would be a lot of fun. But I, um, uh, Craven hunting Loki's kids successfully? Did I miss where Craven got some sort of cosmic power up? I, you know, I had to go back and reread it. The only thing I found is, you know, he still has those herbs that give him some superhero some superhuman abilities so i haven't seen him getting a big cosmic power up i think he's just trying to up his game and and this is the son of the original craven the hunter right i well, believe I this is craven this is craven he had a daughter yeah. He had a oh okay. Then I thought there was I thought there was I thought there was a new I thought there was a new Craven that was introduced in uh Spider-Man or something yeah, Craven, recently. He, Craven did have a son who actually is a mutant, but this this appears to be the original Craven who was brought back in hold on, 
I got it right here. Spider Man Brand New Day. Yeah, it was somewhere around there with the um with what is her why why did I forget her name? The original Spider I mean the second Spider Woman. Uh Rachel Carpenter. Julia Ooh, Carpenter. Carpenter. Oh my god, Rachel's her kid. Um Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's the mom. Yeah. Well now so, Jessica Drew's a mom. I know, right? Wow. Um Spider Mom Club. So yeah, it looks like he came back around the hunted era, uh, the hunted arc in Spider Man. So Yeah, I don't really buy him as capable of hunting Loki's child. Maybe I don't know my craven well enough and if somebody really wants to write in about me not knowing my spider-man villains fighting thor side characters on our x-men podcast i'm (laughs) definitely willing to take the criticism but i really do feel like craven is not a realistic hunter for the child of a god yeah it it seems a little far-fetched um but I mean, more does turn into a wolf, so uh, I don't know. Maybe Elsa Bloodstone would have been a better choice. Uh, yeah, but like I can't see Elsa Bloodstone just going after more for no reason, whereas yeah. Craven is just going after more for the thrill of it all. The hunt it appears he's just after more because more exists. Yeah, which is very Craven. And Elsa would be like, "No bloody hell, I'm gonna get some tea and we'll talk it out. And then if I have to kill you, I'll kill you." What has been your guys's favorite part of this series so far? I have to say personally, I am digging the art. I mean, the story is amazing, but this art, especially the Mattia part, are like next level. Like, oh my God, the colors, the art, everything. I'm wondering how long this will take for them to make them. I think that's the magic of having two artists, though. Like, that's even why I'm all for getting rid of the idea of the 22-page book for the most part, because this is just, I would rather have two 10-page stories in one book telling two sides of a similar story than make, like, art delays and, you know, constantly have fill-in artists. It's not a strike against the artist who did the amazing work on the third issue of X-Factor, but ultimately knowing that X-Factor was only going to be 10 issues and only nine of them would be by David Baldon and the one that's not by David Baldon is it's part of Ten of Swords so it's separated out like it's just weird and I prefer this sort of smoothness by planning it out fewer pages I think it works the art really highlights something that I like about the book there's a mundanity to it and I feel like if you've ever had a chance to read Aaron's Thor or Aaron's Jane Thor really specifically uh, it always feels like there's an event sometimes the book felt a little I don't want to say directionless but a little all over the place but it's because he was trying to do a lot before inevitably the tide had to turn back you know what i mean and i specifically think that this feels kind of like jane foster on an ordinary day she's meeting another asgardian sure it's a big deal asgardian but this feels to me like a really honest adventure of jane and that's one of the things i love about it so much Hey everyone, it's Nathan, and today we're taking a special look into a classic X-Men backup story that has suddenly become more relevant. Classic X-Men number 7's backup issue featuring the first appearance and death of Lourdes Chantel, who has been mentioned recently in the pages of Marauders. Arturo and I are joined by a special guest from X-Twitter, Steve, who is at How Do You Do That on Twitter. We hope you enjoy this amazing conversation we have covering this classic issue. Hey everybody! Welcome to an extra special recording of X's for Podcast. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. 
Hold fast to your fantasy, querido. I'm Arturo, and you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram, where you can catch my amateur action figure photography. And we are joined by our very special guest. Hi, I'm Steve. You can find me at Howdy Duda on Twitter and with X words. And you've done some great appearances on that show, and our team members have guested on there friend of the pod if you would yes uh i made my my debut on there recently and it is such a great show and he's done a great job of making a podcast that is bite-sized and digestible they're 10 minute episodes although they might run a few minutes longer but it's it's great check it out x of words i always like to introduce our audience to our guest steve tell me what is your experience with X-Men, like where are you at in the universe? How big of an X-Men fan are you? Tell me all about it. <laughs> well, I'm a very big X-Men fan, and my Twitter has become only about X-Men, essentially. So that's ever since House of X and Powers of X came out, I dove right back into the fandom after a few years of just rereading old stuff, not buying new stuff for a very long time. I think that's like one of the most interesting things about right now is that the current X fans all have different varying degrees of like familiarity and context and what was your entrance point and what were your highlights and etc. But so many of us that were like in the wind came back during House and Powers and it's just created this cool atmosphere for the fandom that it's really interesting and that's how that's honestly how all of us met really yeah Yeah, i mean absolutely it is that's how i met both of you very particularly i casually got back into comic before house era came so in the color era with golden blue i was like "Ooh, i'm digging this katie pride story where she's the leader of the x-men didn't really love all the choices they made so i I can't really vouch for its quality (laughs) your mileage your mileage may vary like your mileage like may so vary. many things <laughs> and i stuck through it with dissembled which was a really good arc and rose and candy which at the time we were like what why are they killing everybody every issue but now now we know nice to look at it back from that mindset steve do you have any favorite characters because i know me and arturo could talk like days for our favorite characters but what about you i kind of pretend i don't usually when i'm talking to people because there's so many and they're all so wonderful but i'm a big old magneto fan always have been always will be he's the guy who is in all of my favorite stories generally speaking i love to go back and reread 150 and 200 the claremont era stuff i love to reread cullen bunn's magneto series it just gets me every time big richter guy and i've come around on apocalypse in the biggest way possible apocalypse shot from my favorite villain to one of my favorite heroes in x of sorts we all love big blue dad yeah absolutely phenomenal Fun fact, my first appearance on X's for Podcast was all about Magneto, who is definitely, I'm right there with you, one of my tried and true favorite characters since he was a villain. Just such a cool, compelling, unique character with such perspective and such depth and such history that he's just fascinating. But I'm also obviously a massive Storm Stan, and I think that comes through everywhere else I've been. But for your listeners who may not know me, that's a very big thing. Congratulations to you and all the diehard Storm fans out there for the Russell Dodderman. Yes. Yes, all to cover that's coming out that just is beautiful with Storm. And that cover, that cover proves that Storm has never had a bad look. Oh my God. Even in any of her flop eras, she always looked fabulous. 
Like yeah, literally I, storms, looks all slap. The great thing about the Nuker Cohen era is the amazing depths of obscure characters that they've had fun pulling out of obscurity and tapping into this incredible well of lesser known characters the X Office is giving life to underutilized characters. Before we dive into the story that we're really here to talk about, which is Lourdes, what other obscure characters would you love to see brought to life? What other obscure characters would I love to see brought to life that are mutants? Would really love to see like ugly, ugly John again. Uh, oh. wondering what's been going on with that guy. Um, I'm very happy to see people like Rainboy making appearances. Penguin Girl, although not starring anything, is absolutely amazing. I think Stacey X needs to make some appearances. Absolutely. Good yeah. call. Oh, yes. Any Stacey X stand is like amazing to me. So yes. Yeah, you're you're on the right pod. The the only good part of that run, I think, but you know, that's controversial maybe. I would say very topical to the issue that we're going to cover tonight. I would love to move Leland to the front of the of the resurrection oh. queue. Yeah. I'm hoping as we go through this reshuffling of the Hellfire Court and whatnot, I think it'd be interesting to see him back in the mix. I've always liked you Leland. Know. He's just a big old softy doing real yeah, bad stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, I feel I feel like he would have I feel like he would have such a moment now. It's the year of throwbacks and D list and the dustbin. All of these great characters from that have been just collecting dust on the shelf are back in the mix. And the more obscure, the better. Whatever comic you're talking about right now, at when they're doing those deep pulls over in Way of X, over in Sword, over in Hellions, it's catnip. I, we've already seen her back. I would love to see cat's eye get some more recognition because that big goofy purple cat love her mm-hmm. don't even need her with rain she's probably the only thing that made rain likable to me so Ooh. it kills me that in like the early days of this new mutants run like when brisson was writing it i remember when when cat's eye and like some of the hellions were on panel and i was like oh <gasps> This book is going to be the book that has like all those kids. And yeah, those were different days. I was so full of hope for Brisson's run. <laughs> I'm very glad that we are now under Vita's pen. I think New Mutants is doing some really, really interesting stuff right now. So it's all yes. good. But yeah, I, I'm right there with you, man. I want more of the Hellions, all of them. Every, anytime I see them pop up somewhere, we just saw Risk was roulette roulette Roulette. thank you he was in the women of marvelous he was really a bitch to feral very very in in character oh yeah it's totally (laughs) like to a t i need beef we need beef back beef and bevatron that what name (laughs) is that how that's pronounced i always said bevatron (laughs) i I said is it bevatron i I thought it was bevatron but i have no idea because i've never heard that word yeah i mean (laughs) i'm like it's like canon right Mm -hmm. like how long did we all go on calling her quanon for and it's really like canon so canon Canon. Although I guess we're going to talk a little bit about that today with uh, Lourdes. <laughs> Lourdes Chantel. Oh, I, I just, I want to get this out there real quick. I've already fan cast, so you're welcome. I've already figured it out. going to cast Rosalia. I don't know if she can act, but she's gorgeous and she can sing and she knows her way in front of a camera. And I mean, we're going to have a lot of creative liberty when we put Lourdes Chantel in the MCU. So that's my cast, Rosalia. But today we're talking about classic X-Men 7 and its backup story. This is our main introduction to Lourdes Chantel. And she really only had one other 
other appearance. I wish I could have had you guys read it. It's in X-Men The Hellfire Club, the fourth issue of it. It's not on Marvel Unlimited, so you have to like dig for a copy of it somewhere in back issues if you want to try to get that. It does fill in her story a little bit more. She was wealthy business person. She met Shaw. Shaw was poor. She invested money into Shaw, helped him become the man he is. They were even engaged. That is extremely vital information. That is wow. Vital. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's helpful. That changes everything. Yeah, because we just got a snippet of their relationship, and it's certainly not portrayed in the healthiest light. Like, that's for sure. I mean, breaking news, Sebastian Shaw is abusive and controlling of the women his life. Like, I get that that's a very consistent character beat for the guy, but you also get the sense that he did truly love her in his own, like, messed up way. But yeah, I mean, let's let's not jump ahead. But uh, (laughs) suffice to say, his emotions come through in the action that happens in number seven and i just want to say i guess i kind of missed the boat on the whole classic x-men backup stories like i haven't really dug deep into those but when you guys asked me to jump on for this episode i started digging and there's some gold in there claremont in his heyday type stuff like this is this is it i was very happy to see super astronaut dr peter corbeau that anytime his name pops up it tickles me he's just a character that is like outside of continuity at this point in my hut in my head and my heart the school that the children of the adam kids are going to is peter corbeau vita doing the good work absolutely over in children of the adam obviously i know arturo you were kind of like who is this that was the response half of x twitter was like yes lord is and the other half was like who what what the hell are you talking who steve where were you on this did you have any idea who lordis was or were you like who the fuck is this no i knew who she was uh because i follow you on twitter (laughs) (laughs) but i've never read any classic x-men like art and i had to do the whole googling and i read her you know wiki page before i read the issue the issue is much more informative i was a sucker for her design and as soon as i saw like the whole like spaniard like she's very like flamenco kind of diva yeah it really spoke to me yeah and how amazing is it to actually have a character from barcelona most of the characters we're introduced to are from like new york (laughs) new york or like maybe you'll get like a la nightcrawlers germany so but like to actually have storm is africa i don't know how much more specific (laughs) like in africa i'm sure it's been clarified she's from kenya she's from kenya so yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But that's, yeah. And then she spent a lot of time in Cairo. So I believe she was born in Harlem, actually, though. She yes. is. She is American born. And she was born to an American journalist and a Kenyan princess. Mm-hmm. It's always nice to get more of that world view, especially when you consider how hard it would have been for Lourdes and Shaw to have lucked into meeting each other before the invention of Cerebro or any of the mutant detecting devices, realizing they were both mutes, like building this relationship of love, trust, control issues, and everything else on top. Again, we were talking about like how, where you come into continuity or whatever. At the point that I entered X-Men, Shaw was always Hellfire King. He was always this rich gentleman, brawler, underhanded businessman kind of guy. So this issue was really cool because it takes you to that moment before he was running shit before him and his court with Emma Frost at his right hand and Tessa. Can we talk about that? Tessa looking like a million bucks in her little like hellfire lingerie 
with her little updo. She just looks like just a very great era. I know she was robbed of all agency. I know she was a a side character that Claremont was playing with. I'm glad he was able to like revisit the character and give her a you know a moment in the sunshine during the Extreme X Men because talk about a great character that is just kind of like in the background, but there's so much more happening under the surface. One of those great retcons. That was probably my favorite thing to come out of the revolution kitty was able to show some growth she was able to get away from the x-men during that period although we had no idea what happened to her for the longest time we were like did she die what happened i didn't love a lot of the things he did like giving kitty the claw that was like this kind of weird just to pick up some adamantium claws from wolverine and put them in your costume but <laughs> i think kitty did a lot though I mean, in different AUs, different timelines, Age of Apocalypse? Yeah, they did. Age of Apocalypse, they gave her, I don't think it was Wolverine Claws, but it was some sort of retractable claws like Wolverine. So. Yeah, and Jubilee both do that. So I'm, I mean, it, I, ca- it, it matches with the cat thing when she was Shadow Cat, right? Cats have claws. It does. But that's that's one of the things that I did want to talk about. I'm glad you brought up is Tessa's transformation from Tessa, the character we knew her as, like you said, she was Shaw's sidekick. And now she's such a pivotal part of the Krakoan society is Sage. And just the more when we learned that backstory, how she was actually with Xavier from the very beginning, like at the beginning of when he started the school and this poor girl how he decided she wasn't good enough to be one of the X-Men that she had to be sent off to go keep tabs of this rogue agency of the Hellfire Club. Do you guys have any thoughts about Sage's evolution from Tessa into Sage? I think she makes a huge change from a not interesting character to an interesting character is, I think, the biggest thing. I, I see a lot of people talk a lot about how Sage is not an interesting character, and I'm not as versed in her history as Sage, but as she is now, she's very interesting to me. Unfortunately, she does not get a lot of time to do much more than be snarky. I'm a fan of where she's at right now and, and the way in which she's helping, but I think for me, it would have been a little bit more gratifying for her to be on the current Hellfire Court for Hellfire Trading Club as the Black Queen because I think she would absolutely dominate. Yeah, if anybody's put in the time she has. It would definitely add to this whole the girls get it done kind of vibe like we've got the Red Queen, the White Queen, the Black Queen. I would love that. I agree with you on that because she has not only with Shaw but when Roberto da Costa took his position in Hellfire Club she left to go help train him, guide him as the Black King. There's a lot of history with her one being forced into the Hellfire Club but two wanting to go in and help guide these people into becoming more of a benevolent leader, business person, not as ruthless, and and becoming more than that. One thing also that really struck me in this story was that it gave us a more human understanding of Emma Frost. At the time, she was, it was before Generation X, so she hadn't gone through her big revamping as a anti-hero or a more neutrally moral person who has the right goals in mind. We did see some of it in New Mutants around the same time where she was shown to care for the Hellions in a way that her white queen persona in Uncanny at the time really didn't allow for. But you can see how genuinely upset she is about the information she receives from the comatose Colonel Rossi, which is another really cool deep cut into Marvel right there to have Colonel Rossi be the one she gets information from. A lot of people like to blow up the fact that she telepathically controlled Edward Buckman to kill the Hellfire ruling class at the time. But when you look at the actions behind it, I really think it's totally justified <laughs> 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 because it was yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Disney mutants. She was I right. mean, yeah, you know, X is for Emma's apologists. Yeah, we're we're all here in force. Yeah, totally justified, but very cold. I mean, she literally yeah. mowed down their opposition. Like that was self defense. It was well, yeah, self defense, but like also like I'm not going to like take Emma's fangs. Mm -hmm. Self defense to an extent. Emma did what needed to be done. Emma Frost, freedom fighter. They did send Sentinels after them, so that's pretty. Yeah. Can I, <laughs> can pretty I say vicious. that this this version of the Hellfire Club that's in this issue specifically is unlike any I've ever seen during the Claremont era. It is a different side of all of them, and it's. I think they're all better for it. I think it's a different side of Shaw than I've ever seen because mm -hmm. what I remember Shaw sending Sentinels after the New Mutants and being like, "Yeah, this is what I do. I don't care about mutants." In this issue, he cares very much. The Sentinels are being used to exterminate mutants rather than just capture a few. And Emma Frost is like, she's great in this. She's far more sympathetic than she was during this actual period of publishing. And she just, I don't know, she spends a lot of this issue just being, yes, she is Emma Frost. Yes, she is at this time, a cruel, calculating villainess who has stepped on other mutants to get where she is in society. But she also has always obviously cared about her children. She's always cared about what's best for them. And I see her a lot like Mystique. I love Mystique, but I'm about a hundred times more sympathetic to Emma. Like, I think mm -hmm. Emma's a better person. Mystique is oh, a lot is. more psychotic oh, yeah. and yeah, self-serving. But not to be a Mystique apologist because, you know, what you need to dazzle her. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mystique also had the knowledge that the mutant kind was going to go under this very dark path. And she took very specific certain actions to try to ensure the brighter future for mutant kind. Yeah. Yes. Is she ruthless as fuck? Absolutely. I think but she should. She had this knowledge. And, and just give her her goddamn wife back. But you know. Even villains deserve to have love. I mean... Definitely, Mystique yeah. has done a lot of things that I would absolutely hate her for if she was in my universe. The collaboration with the government, 100%. But, you know, I, I love Mystique. I love reading about Mystique. Absolutely. I love Mystique. I, I want I want to write a Krakoan era book called Freedom Force. That's 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 my pitch. I, I I've got a whole I've got a whole thing that involves Mystique and her quest to get Destiny back. And it involves a oh, lot of clones. Tell me about it. A lot of clones. Yeah. Tell me about it, Arturo. Mystique tell me about it. Mystique and Mystique working with Madeline Pryor, Evan Sabanor, Joseph, and Kid Strife. All resurrected clones. She's, she Love she she breaks the Krakoan law about the clones. She amasses a team, and they they uh, go to the white the to the Quiet Council to get Destiny back. Yes, very good of you to always refer to him properly as Kid Strife. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. No, I'm not talking about Kid Cable. <laughs> who? Kid who? So, from this issue, what is the main thing that you took away from the character of Lourdes Chantel? What do you think that all of the stands out there who are like, oh my god, Lourdes, what do you think they were so excited about? What is it that you're excited about? And do you think they're going to be able to bring her back, or was the cover solicit for the future Marauders issue a fake out. I think the greatest thing about Lourdes for me is the her immediate response to Ned Buckman. Shaw's like, oh, Ned's an old friend, you know, ha ha ha, we go way back drinking buddies. And Lourdes is literally like, false friend, lying patron. You know, I love it. I love it so much. She has fangs. She knows Buckman has fangs. She's not blinded by the climb 
the capitalist climb to the top like Shaw clearly is. Sean talks about his whole like, I needed acceptance and respect and I let that blind me. What he really needed was dominance over the women in his life and such, the poorer people in his life, his, the people he considers himself better to. He talks a whole lot about manliness and this issue and uh, his treatment of Leland, his treatment of the Sentinel even. But Lourdes is having none of that. She is absolutely very clear about her climb. She's clear about where she stands as a mutant, and she keeps that first and foremost in her mind. She may be wealthy, she may be a member of this hideous club that runs the New York social scene and possibly the world, but first and foremost, Lourdes is a mutant. And first and foremost, Lourdes is looking out for other mutants. She's absolutely having none of this Project Armageddon Sentinel bullshit. Yeah, I, I really like her. I came away from this one issue being like, wow, justice for Lourdes. She did not deserve to be fridged at the end of this issue. She got fridged. That's I'm glad you said yeah. it because that's exactly what happened. She got like, absolutely fridged yeah, she, for Sebastian Shaw. She got fridged for Sebastian <laughs> Shaw. Yeah. God, gross. It's interesting how in the pages of Marauders recently, uh, when they alluded to her, when she came up, they Jerry went to great pains to specify that Lourdes died before the Cerebro backup system kind of came online. And, wow. uh, and I love that, that Emma had like a little glimmer of an idea in her eyes so we'll see what comes of that like maybe we're going to explore you know what happens because it's interesting that in this issue at lordis's death sebastian's there emma frost is there leland is there like they were there they experienced her death right that's yeah. that's not just like oh i met her so you know maybe like oh and tessa was there sage was there as well at her death site so who, who knows, forgets. you know, maybe who never forgets, right? Who's like the living computer. So maybe mm -hmm. Emma's going to do something where she pulls all the memories or whatever from all these different people. Oh. And it'll be like a new kind of resurrection where it's like, yeah. we I'm don't have thing. exactly their memories, but it's kind of, you know, that I think that would be really interesting because then you have a, you know, you, there's already tension there right from the moment she, she hatches. Yeah, so, I'm all for that. I don't think I would have been excited before reading this issue, and I'm very excited now for the idea. That would be I'm so, so excited. Would be I'm so excited. I want her back. I want her as the Black Queen since uh, since Sage is in, in that role. If you read classic X-Men instead of reading X-Men number 99, there are a few extra pages of the actual story that they throw into the comic for the classic X-Men pages itself. I originally, when I was a kid, this is how I first read the story, was classic X-Men 7. I was thinking, oh, wow, this Hellfire Club appeared way earlier than I, than it really did because they, they show that the Council of the Chosen is actually the Hellfire Club in this issue right here. And you see Sage and uh, Sebastian Shaw talking together, which never really happened in the original comic. There's another page, too, that the art is just so obviously different that it's hysterical but it doesn't add as much to the story <laughs> i suggest for continuity if you're going to read the actual issue i would read x-men 99 because i don't know where the historical continuity actually fits with the revisions they did in the classic x-men stories i don't know if it's considered canon or not at this point but the backup stories all are especially now that they're bringing that more into light. There are other backup stories that they have referenced in other things. Issue after Dark Phoenix dies, they show her going to Death's workspace, where he's a construction worker just building layer upon layer of this building in space. And they've shown that again in Excalibur when they had Rachel deal with the Phoenix Force itself and deal with the personification of Death. 
in that form. These stories are in continuity. I don't know about the additions to the classic stories that they did in class. The page where Emma is at the hospital or, or whatever at this facility with, with Colonel Rossi and a sentinel tears open the roof and is basically like attacking her. And it's a really familiar image because it is this is something that is like a recurring trope. And immediately it took me to X-Men 281 drawn by Wills Portacio and the X-Men are at a gala or at a party there at the Hellfire Club in, in New York. And what happens? But the Sentinels tear through the roof, show up, slaughter the Hellions right in front of Emma. And it's very reminiscent. I didn't realize that the time, you know, this image that was like seared into my head was probably a callback to this issue and is also a callback in Astonishing when they assemble like the new school and the new faculty and the new students and Emma runs a, a danger room kind of simulation where the Sentinels tear the roof off and attack mutants. So it's a great trope and it's something that is just, it's understandable why emma would use that as a as a big scary fear to project onto other people because she's literally been through it a couple of times and it is terrifying each time that is actually a really interesting thought that you just put in my mind this we saw a hellfire gala here it ended in tragedy we saw in 281 a hellfire gala there that ended in tragedy sentinels were involved both times i'm wondering are we going to get Sentinels in the big Hellfire Gala event? I'm kind of hoping that at the gala, like the 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 ceiling is going to be kind of like a Sistine Chapel type of <laughs> painting. So it's like really elegant and opulent, but it's like of the Sentinels attacking and it's just Sentinels <laughs> overhead over the party the whole night. I think that would you be You guys so realize nice. that the ceiling of the Hellfire Gala is a literal Sentinel head. Yes. Absolutely. It is. Yep, Absolutely. It sure as hell is. It is. She is having it on her island, isn't she? Yeah. I, I can't wait for the gala. I've got my outfit. I've got my, my funky Kirby hat. I'm getting together a real outfit for the Hellfire Gala in real life, although I don't know if it'll be ready in time. I think I'm just going to like get a white sheet and drape it over myself and call it uh, <laughs> Jimmy <laughs> King Jamie Braddock kind of, you know, Absolutely. couture. Just, Go just very Jamie simple, Jamie. Yeah, I got the mustache. I'm ready. Jamie is the role you were born to play. <laughs> so do you have a favorite Hellfire Gala look, Steve? I mean, it should be obvious to anybody by now, but it's Storms. It's incredible. She's got literal clouds and lightning. Her hair is just so magnificent. It's It knocks everything else's dick in the dirt. Storms Colossus. is pretty perfect. Storms is pretty perfect. Colossus, I agree. Colossus, Colossus is, really is Colossus and, definitely and, is best dressed male. Best dressed male for sure. Very well dressed. <laughs> Looks astonishing with that beard. Here, here. I'm gonna love to hate seeing him. Absolutely. I don't know. Some of the some of my favorite Hellfire Gala costumes are legitimately the fan made ones. As good as Russell Dodderman's designs are, mm. and you know all the other people working on them. I really liked um, at knife systems. Uh, whole New Mutants gig thing that we went through the Twitter so moments cool. of. Absolutely phenomenal. All of those. I don't know. I, I like all the dumber ones. Like Nightcrawler's one is incredible. And Magneto just looks Magneto just looks amazing. I see people being like, he's so ugly. And I'm like, he is such a goddamn king. He's... <laughs> Totally so king. Him and him and, and Xavier look like such a couple where they're like little matching like uh, gold Xavier on the other hand looks like white chocolate gross is bad. Like <laughs> his outfit is so nasty. What's up with the pimp chains? I, uh, I think it's so funny. 
Yeah, yeah, I was like, that. oh yeah, that's that's not going to help with the that's not going to help at all with the folks who are saying that the X Men feel like a cult. Like, look at Xavier's outfit; it's not helping. It's not helping. <laughs> well, Xavier has always dressed like a cult leader. I mean, that's that's his deal, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, totally. I remember that first time he went on a mission with uh, Rachel and Celine that battle there, and he wore that big. It was like a big yellow unitard with a big X on it. It was like, what are you wearing? Speaking Carl? of Celine, we've seen little uh, little snippets from I think pages of forthcoming X Corps, where Celine mm-hmm. is there looking fabulous with a high ponytail, and so yeah, we'll see Celine hopefully in the pages of X Corp. I honestly don't want Fenris there, not even just because they're Nazis, but because I feel like it's already too close to the trial of Magneto as it is. <laughs> Seeing the Fenris twins just make me think more and more about the sadness I feel at the idea that Magneto could be put on trial again. I don't think that's what's going to happen, but... I'm so terrified, honestly. Like, that when they when they released that that was the title that's coming out, I just, like, dropped my drink. I was like, wait, what? Like, yeah. what are you guys going to do to Magneto? Like... I had to go Please don't take us car. back to evil Magneto. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I worry no for, our, for our once and future king. Magneto should just never be a serious villain again. And then we have to lose X-Factor for it. I'm heartbroken about it as well. So many characters that I was beginning to love for the first time, honestly, many of them. I've never felt this much affection for Northstar or Akihiro. Iboy is such a delight. He hasn't even had a smoke out with Rachel yet. You know, X-Factor has always like been a weird title and it's at its best when it's at its weirdest. I know so many unanswered questions. It would be great if someday the team got a chance to get back on the title. I hope that those questions are explored elsewhere obviously the possibility of trans mutants and what resurrection holds for them it's so important to find out what kakoa is doing about trans mutants and i mean we don't see any on the page because marvel is too afraid apparently to put any on there it's the type of thing that just feels like such low-hanging fruit like it's like just give us like you know and i mean and and to their credit uh vita has definitely brought some you know trans or non-binary mutants in the mix but it definitely feels like they're is fertile soil there i understand why some creators are like that's not my story to tell i get that that's like a sticky situation but i would love to see it happen on page and i really thought that that was one of the things that leah was was yeah. going to explore so they need to get the people who can tell those stories on this exactly exactly though the answer is always yeah. more right more representation Higher more writers. diversity yeah more yeah no exactly. then there's, there's even even mags right they could get mags back on she did an amazing dazzler solo book for like you know it was one issue but she did that amazing dazzler x song so there are writers out there that they could use that are well versed in these stories and have proven themselves in so many different ways that could bring these characters in i agree not having any trans mutants that we really know of yes i think we have jesse drake but jesse drake hasn't shown up in how long have you seen her i haven't seen her on Krakoa, so i would love love to see her but it's kind of like when you look back at uh doom patrol even like rachel pollock had this amazing run on doom patrol created coagula who is an amazing character and coagula ever since the pollock run has not shown up anywhere there's that pollock run is the only run of the doom patrol book that doom patrol book that hasn't gotten a collected edition for it too so there is some i have noticed that i am very aware of that unfortunately although we haven't seen jesse drake coming out of the x offices 
is yet, and hopefully that'll happen at some point. I do want to plug a great Twitter follow uh, at TransRage is working with artists, a great artist, yep. Valentine Smith, to do a basically a one issue story about Jesse Drake on Krakoa. I'm going to buy it. Highly recommend everybody do. It looks absolutely astonishing or it is going to look absolutely astonishing i've seen a lot of uh, valentine's work it's yes incredible yeah it's an important issue that really needs to be addressed within the marvel community Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now, Rod, Raven, Robbie, and Evelyn did such an amazing job on the first arc of Runaways. Even though we were hoping to make this maybe come out a little bit slower, it was just too much fun. And so we're going to continue our coverage of Runaways by trade in order to catch up and start covering it regularly. Whether it's the appearances of Molly on Krakoa or the further advancement of the idea of the value of being young and different in the Marvel Universe. There is so much thematically in Rainbow Rowell's and Chris Anka's Runaways that it would be a huge misstep for us not to cover it. We hope you guys enjoy this segment just as much as we enjoyed making and editing it. And if you guys like what you hear, you'll probably like what you see. So don't forget to check out the aforementioned Daily X over on YouTube at X's for Podcasts. And while you're at it, maybe drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on YouTube, Twitter, and Patreon. As always, guys, we love making this show for you twice a week, every week. So until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of X is for Podcast. I am Rod. You can find me at Rod, the on Twitter and Instagram. And today we have with us the excellent Evelyn. Hi, <laughs> I'm Evelyn, the comic canary. We also have Robbie. <laughs> I didn't know who we were going to. We do so so many. We do things weird and different. <laughs> and then I'll be in the We do. We were just building up the suspense for the audience. Right. <laughs> uh, hey, everyone. I'm Ravi, and you can find me being cute at Age of Valerius on Twitter. And with us, we have Raven. Hello, I'm Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento, D-A-M-E-R-E-D-B-E-N-T-O. And uh, today, I think we are doing episodes, uh, not episodes, issues 7 through 12 of The Runaways. Yes, we are. By Rainbow Rouse, the writer, artist is Chris Anka, the colorist is Matthew Wilson. Raven, this is your first time reading these six issues, correct? Yes, so- yes, it is. This is my this is my first run through of this particular um, uh, Runaways series. It- <laughs> I didn't think I would get this drawn into the book, and yet I just inhaled all of these issues. It was it was really really good, and had like oh, it had so many salient points. But yeah, it's like it is very much written from the perspective of very young adults and um, young teenagers, like trying to figure out what the hell they're supposed to do where do they fit in the world when they have just been absolutely displaced you know their parents were a bunch of freaking supervillains. the world now knows that you know where do, where do you fit in after that and and can you fit in after that especially when you're not even trying to do the superheroing thing you're just trying to do the getting the job thing so yeah it was it was good i liked it good good i know like i was gonna say do you know if you like this 
obviously you answered it if you like this arc better than the other one. You said this one you read through even faster. So Yeah, I, I think I think I liked this part of the arc even better than the first part. The first part was good. Mm-hmm. You know, um it, it gave you a lot of great backstory so you really didn't feel left behind because there was honestly so much that was going on. Um but now you could get into a little bit more action, a little less seriousness from time to time, um and, and a bit more like action adventure or at least interplay between instead of having to go back and discuss the before. So yeah, this is this is really great. It started picking up speed and I loved it. Can I disagree? <laughs> like i enjoyed it like i'm a sucker for slice of life don't get me wrong but to me it felt mm-hmm. really slow at parts like mm-hmm. it that was kind of my thing it's it felt i mean it was really good exposition really interesting but there was a point where i was feeling like i want a little bit more action i want a little bit more mm-hmm. plot rather than just the character development it was great character development but I definitely did feel at parts that it was a little slow and it's just like all right I need a little bit more action here especially I definitely I definitely felt a little bit of the same way with this second art I did love it because we got so many introductions like Abigail you know Victor got his body back in a sense we got Doombot you know we saw (laughs) Julia Pat (laughs) Doombot's the best love him freaking love Doombot Oh my god, if I have a third asthma attack today because of laughing, I swear. I'm (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry, that Doombot was one of my favorites. Yeah, and then we even get Julia Power, so we get like a lot of introductions in this arc that are like bring a lot of drama. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was like, it was a lot of talking. And I feel like that's what this whole series has been basically like, um, like an anthology of how each runaway is developing emotionally. Yeah. And yeah. not really like they're steering away from the superhero stuff and to a point. I mean, they, they kind of get back to that later. Mm-hmm. But they're like, how do we figure out ourselves as a family again? And I feel like this was part two of that. Mm-hmm. But now they're assimilating into society. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, what, two or three of them are old enough to get jobs. Yeah. So, and, and, and yes, while I believe some of their parents were like millionaires, they still need to find, you know, basic day-to-day ways to live. And it's not like you can sell a secret base that may be highly booby-trapped or contain weapons that could do a shit ton of damage to the planet. It's like, mm, how do you list that? I mean, I guess you could talk to Tony Stark to figure out how to do that. I mean, yeah. you know, AIM might buy it, knowing them. <laughs> right? AIM would definitely buy a Doombot. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, the Doombot would destroy AIM by himself. But <laughs> even if Modok was there, so but still, I, oh my god, yes, yes, please. <laughs> one of the key things that we got, one of the first that we got in this, and it was towards the end, um, was the the thing that I really loved was the kiss of Nico and uh, oh, don't jump all the way to the end, my god, man. I know, I'm not trying to finish it, I'm just saying it's one of my favorite parts. I just, I was waiting for that for so long. And mm-hmm. Rainbow Rowell definitely took her time with that. And I understand taking time. She wants to build the development. And she had to have Carolina break up with Julia Power first because then she would be cheating if she wasn't. So I kind of understood that. It honestly felt like the kiss afterward. Like you could always tell that there was tension between them. Mm-hmm. So much so that you forgot that, she, that, that Carolina had a girlfriend. <laughs> 
I was like, yeah. she has a what now? Oh shit, that's right, she has a girlfriend. Crap. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I felt like they should have handled that particular breakup situation earlier rather than later and then let the tension between Carolina and Nico have a little bit more like time to breathe. That way you're not going, oh, this is a rebound kiss or ooh, still sort of kind of cheating because you just got dumped by your girlfriend and you're just, you're going to head hop on this like, uh, uh, I don't know if I can like 100% be behind it, though. Yeah. So while I do agree with the timing, I'll also say as someone who's who like read Runaways back when I was like 14, that one moment that I've been waiting for that shit for like over a decade. (laughs) Like, so yeah, while it might have been like timing wise a bit rushed, Mm. you know, let's be real. We ate that shit up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I posted that all over social media when that first came out. (laughs) I was like, this is my one true pairing. And Um, at that time, the TV show was coming out. So I was mm -hmm. like, yeah, I was even more like runaways. So, <laughs> yeah, for sure. But no, I do agree I, with the timing issue. It, the, the breakup should have been dealt with earlier. Yeah. yeah. In fact, if, if they'd done if they'd done the breakup like I think back before Best Friends or at the beginning of Best Friends, I feel like it could have been in the first arc. Honestly, when they went to go have yeah. Molly, Julia Power could have been there. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and that's the whole thing is is when you're starting this part of the arc, it's uh, best friends forever. So either having the breakup just before that, especially because she says, you'll always have me. You'll you'll always have me you know, forever as a friend. Like that would have been a perfect segue mm. into best friends forever. And like kind of the tension mm. that it might have created between them. Although I still adore the fact that somebody was like, is this evil twin hour? Is one of them supposed <laughs> to have a goatee? I'm like, that was funny as fuck. That was hilarious. That really was. I I feel like Rainbow Rowell was like, my this book could get canceled at any moment. So <laughs> she was probably like, I need to rush this relationship, mm, especially fair. before it hits 12 issues. And be like, mm-hmm. they, I need to make this moment happen because if I don't get a chance to, I'll probably kick myself. Mm-hmm. So, so I could see that happening. I'm sure... She is grateful of how long it has lasted. But I'm sure if, you know, if she was here right now, she'd probably be like, yeah, I didn't, you know, I was prepared for it not to last this long. Because <laughs> I think it's in like issue 30 or 20 something now. Uh, it's so. 30, oh, it's, no, it's in like 30. 36. Yeah, it's Well, then shut me up. (laughs) So 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 the arc has been running for like three years now, roughly? Four. I think a little longer. Yeah, because um, there was a long hiatus in 2020. Mm. 2017 it started. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, but yeah, that, that I just realized... When I said, oh, yeah, I needed to come sooner, I was like, oh, wait, that technically issue 12 is like a year in. And I'm just like, oh, that's right, because I just got to binge, you know, (laughs) a big brick of it. I'm like, yeah, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, so you kind of get it now (laughs) (laughs) in retrospect. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Time passes differently when you have to wait Mm -hmm. month by month for shit to come out. I do like the storyline with Abigail. And how like she basically was like Alice in Wonderland and mm-hmm. all of that. I really enjoyed that. I wish we kind of would have got. I wish we would get her again. Maybe go back to that arc or just mm-hmm. kind of expanded more on it. I feel like we we could have got more from it. 
She needs to be explored further. She like needs to come back in at some point, either as uh, possibly, I don't know, maybe she finally got to age up by a couple of years or something like that. Found a way to sort of crack the curse rather than fully break it. And so, you know, yeah, she gets moved up by a couple of years and starts to become a super villain or something to that effect. Like her reaction to uh, being stripped of the ability to ever undo the spell very 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 reasonable um but also like you know you you would think about to go kill something you would think that like this like she has to come back she has to come there's so much that was left behind in that storyline that it's it's a perfect setup to actually bring her back at some point to interact again with hopefully slightly more developed characters or slightly older characters now who may i mean they all left feeling really really horrible and bad and in fact like when she oh uh when molly just took off her hat got Mm -hmm. in the car i'm like ah that's the loss of innocence that really hurts right there uh she's she's not a little kid anymore she's been exposed to the cruelty of adults and to the repercussions of just wayward magic and and the fact that her best friend is like a 60 some odd year old woman who is now trapped forever in this predicament and she had to do it in order to uh help julie get back to her her body her her original age or the age she's supposed to be instead of which is like it's so weird to me because like you have all these people on speed dial and nobody has a like a magician Mm -hmm. or a sorcerer or a god on speed dial like you don't have dr strange or 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 thor or anybody else on speed dial that you could go hey we just got a cursed cupcake over here and we really need some magical Mm -hmm. help is there any way you can help us either undo it or figure out what we have to do in order to break it like well she's nah, they just texting them they just they decide to handle it mm-hmm. on their own yeah i feel like the, the thing with the runaways they don't want help they don't trust the adults they don't like, trust that's their whole them. thing well, they don't trust Gertz, the adventures at all Gertz does not trust the adults the yeah. the older uh nico and chase are just uh they're trying to hold their shit together but they are the least capable adults i've seen in a long time (laughs) i feel like they don't trust the adults but they're also trying to prove that they can also be adults and handle their own shit they're like we're older now especially chase chase is like i'm older now i'm like you know the the head of the family because he's like the main like guy mm-hmm. the only guy except for uh the robot victor right yeah yeah, yeah. so pretty much so he has this like probably like alpha male type of mentality because that's just his character anyway and he's like i have to do this i have to do like take care of them i can't ask for help and like screw the avengers anyway they don't they don't even like us <laughs> they're just gonna they're gonna take molly and put her in a like foster care and then mm-hmm. sent Gert back to the past like uh, that right. definitely yeah. shows with Chase when he was um really quick to want to do like a thing to adopt Molly mm-hmm. I really like that on uh, growth in his character because he was you know years back he was a very immature character mm-hmm. and now he's more in the role of the head of the household type of thing quote-unquote mm-hmm. and I really like that change and like going on like other changes i really like how rainbow rowell is able to continue like showing the growth in these characters as the series slowly develops over time no for sure showing them they're now turning into these young adults that have responsibilities 
Chase for sure feels responsible for keeping the team back together from falling apart again. Even Nico is like, I guess I need a job now to support my family. And even Molly, like the whole thing with Molly trying so hard to just stay innocent, loving middle school and that that just that whole arc of them like showing is like yes they are growing up and then also showing that Gert didn't have that chance to grow up with them like the dichotomy of that was just really interesting to me where it did kind of show like she does feel left out she feels very estranged like that whole scene where she's walking through like the sea of people with purple hair like i get that whereas like she did it to stand out and be different and now having natural hair color is the thing because it's like it's so popular to dye your hair now um it was just it was just very interesting to see that like the way it was all done that was great I was gonna say, speaking of Gert, I mean, like, you do really see how she just feels so alone. Mm -hmm. Like, she's like, I don't fit in. Like, I was in love with Chase. Now he's an adult. So me being with him is not good. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And then because she's 16. And she's like, my other friends, you know, they try to be helpful and everything. But they have their own stuff going through, too. And Molly as you said, it's growing up. And that was like her little sister, basically. Yeah. Or like yeah. her, you know, foster sister. But now she doesn't even really need her because she has, you know, her friend Abigail. It's a super villain, kind of. Um, <laughs> but like, and other things, she's just kind of thin. She's like a, a mutant, kind of, and like figuring out her powers. And Gert can't help with that. That I feel like that's why she really turns, it gets explored later, but this is how it get, like basically gets introduced, how she really connects with the Victor and the robot. Because Victor's kind of stuck too. He doesn't have his family who doesn't really connect with anybody. He's out of place in a sense, just like Gert. So like, oh, two out of place people find each other to make each other happier. And they're both the people who don't have any powers. Yeah. Like, yeah, he's a superpower. He has like a supercomputer brain, but he has no body. And he really doesn't want a body because he's so afraid of what might happen if he did have a body mm-hmm. because of all the shit that's happened in his past. But yeah, he's like, he's he's very much a person out of place, out of time. You know, he's been turned off for two years. Yeah. You know, nobody thought to open that box for two years. So he's been tr- turned off for two years and Gert's been gone for two years. And yet here she is brought back. So again, a person out of time. And so now they have to kind of connect over that because she also doesn't have any superpowers. She, yes, she has, you know, the mental connection to old lace, but she doesn't really have any powers. She doesn't have... Nico's magic or Carolina's uh, super alien abilities or, you know, Molly's super strengths from engineering or Chase's uh, abilities with, with mechanical items and a shit ton of money. <laughs> yeah. And he, and like Chase is an adult too, and she's not. Yeah. And like, so. how, okay. How old is Chase? I am so not trying to give any like, well, maybe no, I just want to know how old is Chase? He's like 20, 21, 20. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because the way she really reacted to him, I was like, did he like accidentally bring her forward eight years into the future where like he is definitely older, older, older? But yeah, like still, yeah, 20 and 16, that is a, that is a, yeah, yeah, that's a no. Yeah. So I can see how she's, oh man, that one hurts just a little bit because it's like she was so in love with him yesterday Mm. and he is still very much in love with her, but both of them recognize that that is not appropriate, at least for several more years. So, you know, can't do that. Uh, As you're talking about that, I'm thinking about, I just read the recent issue and I'm just like, ah, I can't talk (laughs) about that. Um, (laughs) It's like, 
This is so far ahead. <laughs> Can't talk about it, but I'm like, I was thinking about it. Um, but such a comic book moment is like, this is a pure comic book of her kissing Victor's severed head and just holding it and having this really beautiful butterfly moment. But that is like pure comic book. Yeah. <laughs> just kiss me. Sir, you are a severed head. Yeah, a severed head. <laughs> Okay. But listen, if you were in her predicament, I would also kiss a cute ass severed robotic head. If you tongue him, it's going to come out his neck. Come on. <laughs> Just. Uh. <laughs> Doesn't he have like a bottom thing at the bottom of his neck? If oh, I so you're going to lick batteries instead? <laughs> like, uh. I wonder if he tastes like batteries. Like, probably not, right? Probably not. No, wait, no, because if I remember correctly, the inside of his mouth looks completely normal because yeah. he didn't know he was an android for the longest. Yeah. So she's fine. But also, <laughs> also, he doesn't have a body to regulate his head, and his mm-hmm. head has been a thing for a while. So his his mouth at least got taste like dust. Well, I'm, sure they I'm pretty sure they dusted in there. Them. I could, can you imagine Molly getting a little duster and cleaning? <laughs> okay, I'm like Aww. having a like biology meltdown because I'm just like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like saliva. Is, does he produce saliva? Like. <laughs> Did, when he was turned off, did it just get all dry and crackly? If it's organic exactly. manner, is his like tongue like all like gross now? Like I don't know if I would want to kiss someone that guessing... like had it has been in, left in a box for two years, let alone a severed head. Like I'm like... my only guess is either it's a like synthetic skin, kind of like a silicone, so it doesn't degrade too too fast. Um, or it's another type of polymer that very much, again, resembles skin. And therefore, since it's been, you know, done by Reed Richard or Tony Stark or whoever, it doesn't degrade quite as quickly. But I don't think he would have any, like, salivary glands. Well, he, he doesn't made, eat. He was made by Ultrons, right? So, I mean. Okay, but he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't eat. He doesn't, yeah, yeah, no. he doesn't have those certain bodily functions per se. <laughs> Wait, so yeah, no, it would be all oh man, that'd be all dry and rubbery. Yeah, but I was saying he probably stays intact because Ultron oh. would only make the best thing. So Ultron oh, probably okay. planned for that. I'm assuming because Ultron yeah. knows all. It's I like, like kissing a sex doll. Like that's just uh, uh, it's like it, it would be like kissing a real doll. Is is the only thing I can think of? I'm like, yes, that's what I think of too. And I just I. I, and on this podcast, we do not judge people that like sex dolls. I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with that for people that are into that. But like, <laughs> no, it's not even a matter of judgment. It's just the I'm trying to figure out. Like, I mean, because real dolls feel rather real as mm. as far as that goes. But I mean, you could still tell the difference. So I'm just like thinking of how that all works. Not to mention, I mean, we're talking about you know like musculature and you know bone density, all that. Because if you're a robot, how do you get the musculature to move your face and not look like a like a Disney animatronic? Well, all I know is that when Ultron made him, he worked his damn ass off making. <laughs> He understood the assignment, all right? I Ultron understood the assignment. 100%. <laughs> you want to talk about someone that understands the assignment. It's freaking Chris Anka with all these different outfits and oh, stylings. Oh, my God. I just, I, I love his work on this book. 
He oh, really, yeah. like, when it was first coming out, he would show all these different outfits, and it was just amazing. Everybody was just eating it up. Mm-hmm. He did, he did such a good job, not only, you know, like, bringing in modern-day fashions of 2017, but also giving really interesting fashions to each member that gave them, like, their own personality, that gave them their own feel mm-hmm. in this book. Um, you know, Gert went from almost grunge rock to um, these that really nice kind of sleek outfit in episode tw- or in uh, issue twelve, where it's you know it's just nice, it's clean, it's slightly futuristic, and then they go on that little adventure out to see the butterflies and whatnot. And mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, this is a really great shift, and everybody very much has their own. Like Carolina is the granola crunching hippie and Nico is always that perfect edge of fashion mm-hmm. you know looks like she could walk down the runway at any point in time you know Chase is you know yeah he's he's, he's the dude he's the man of the house <laughs> you know? so yeah no they oh man the art in this is so perfect because it rides that beautifully fine line between slice of life and a little bit of action and adventure and I love the way they do it and again like you like you all have brought up like I want to reiterate the fact that he can take these different styles of people and do them justice and do it so well. Like he can have like such harsh lines on Chase and yet so soft feminine lines on Gert and just the way the character development is through the artwork, the character design is brilliantly done as well. And I just love it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Chris is one of the artists of our generation and he just keeps knocking out of the park. I, I, mm-hmm. I sometimes just, I read books that he's just on. I might not even like the book. I'm like, oh, well, then I start liking the book because of the art and the writing. But I'm like, I don't even know what this book's about. I'm going to read it because it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and that's, I feel that's that. very much exactly that. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. But yeah, they, oh man, they do such, they do such a great job. I can't complain too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know me, I, I, I can find, <laughs> I can find needling points almost everywhere. But again, I was very happy and pleased to be coming in and reading this book, not just because of the acclaim, um, not just because of the art, not just because of the plot and the fact that it's been made into, you know, a Hulu series. But for the very fact that I was told it had such good writing, and I have been very pleasantly surprised at how good the writing and the art actually work together to bring it, bring the story forward. It's it's so well done. I love it. Exactly. I definitely agree. Speaking of good writing, I forgot until I reread it that Enchantress was the one that actually gave Abigail the, you know, the cupcakes and the, and the elixir. And... Mm-hmm. I actually, I love, love, love the way Rainbow Rowell writes Enchantress. The fact that she's just like having her like inner monologue, walks around, kills these birds, and is just like, oh, wait, there's a little girl. And I just was like, I need her to write like a five issue Enchantress book. Because <laughs> I, I, I. Enchantress I, slice of life. Right? Just like, I need to explore her psyche more. Because I feel like we don't really get that with that character. She's just kind of. You know, there as like a, a villain, as like a kooky, like funny, horrible, killing birds in the sky villain. And then we kind of move on. I feel like she has some depth in her. I feel like Rainbow Rowell could get that for her. She's that like a be dark a fairy godmother. <laughs> yeah. Eat the cake or don't. Oh, I don't care. I have things to do. No, you know, <laughs> it would be so fun 
funny to see like a series like that because it could literally just be her doing like oh what evil things shall i do today yeah yeah well to her but those aren't evil things those are necessary things she's a god after all right she's like i just killed those birds because they're weak and humane they should have been better they should have been protected from my magic oh earth like it's just her reasoning it was very much like arrows vibes like the whole story of like the chaos the golden apple with the greek gods like Mm. it's like that's one of my like favorite mythos stories so like that's kind of the vibe i got where it's just like ugh, i'm bored here child have this (laughs) right oh to be like you again was i ever that young and innocent here have magic that you have no idea what it will actually do it's like, wait, what? It's a what now? Eh, you did or don't. I don't care. Right? It, like she, you just she, gave a 13-year-old magic for eternal life. Like, holy shit, what is wrong with you? Which explains, like, so much about the story arc about this character where, like, when you think about it, like, when she's just like, oh, a, like, I was always a kid. Like, the adults don't understand. The adults are blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah. yeah. The reason she thinks that way is her development has been permanently stunted mm-hmm. at 13. Like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I like. I know I'm making a sympathetic character out of like not necessarily a villain, but not ex- necessarily a great person. Period. But um, mm-hmm. like to me, it it is sympathetic because she, to me, it was not consensual. Where she yeah. did mm-hmm. not develop at all. Like I personally agree. Thirteen was the worst year in my life. I think like yeah, middle, yeah. like Ooh, yeah. seventh grade. I have not met a single person that said seventh grade was anything but the worst year of their life. It's, uh, like, oh, that shit was fucking terrible. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and it just... I, like, I fully agree. Like, I would have... I If I was suddenly 13 again and going through those hormones... For oh, 60 years. Oh, oh, hell. Like, if Ooh. I had grown and matured and suddenly went back into the seventh grade or eight, like or eighth grade, like, oh, my God. I don't think I could handle it. No. And it was so funny because Abigail kept going, you'll never have to go through periods and you'll never have to go through cramps or acne. I'm like, bitch, maybe you don't have to go through right. but plenty of us who started much earlier, and eating that cupcake would have doomed me to some of the worst medical problems. <laughs> oh, man, no. No, no. No, thank you, no. Mm-mm. Yeah, I definitely feel sympathetic for Abigail. I think she was only, like, a, a, a mini-villain. Yeah, she's a mini-villain based on circumstances. That wasn't even her fault. Yeah, And yeah. then she's left to that because... Of again, a thing that wasn't her fault because she just wanted a friend. So it's not a a, like her story's like Enchantress really fucked her over. (laughs) Yeah, that's that we found the plot of the five Mishy miniseries of Abigail like being like, like someone like finally talking to Abigail and it's like, no, this is kind of fucked up. He's like, is this fucked up? And her like finding Enchantress is just like, uh, I think you fucked me up. <laughs> there's there's the plot of the Enchantress five right. arc miniseries five and five arc maybe five <laughs> five issue miniseries yes right. and then like Enchantress is like oh my god who else have I fucked over and it's like going through the list <laughs> everybody final, final arc cake or death 
<laughs> oh my god again that gives me like did anyone read the book ella enchanted mm, mm-hmm. so the no, in the book version so literally the fairy that goes here's a blessing a blessing and they're just like no it's actually a curse and she's like it's not a curse i'll live for six months like this a month later oh my god what have i done <laughs> <laughs> Like the fairy tales are never actually good. <laughs> they get twisted, <laughs> and then like it never has the happy ending like that. Well, because modern fairy tales have been soft, and their mm-hmm. edges have been rounded and made to be very comfortable. Original fairy tales are horrifying by today's standards on so many levels. We are talking slavery. We're talking hot iron slippers that make you dance to death. We're talking, you know, being run to exhaustion and your own death at your daughter's funeral or at your daughter's marriage because you were such a raging bitch. <laughs> like, no, there, there's, there's so many horrifying. I do want to point out that there's a little bit of the Enchantress. I like how, not to spend too much longer on that, but I like how she complains about you know that the asgardians live too long mm-hmm. and everything but then she gives this little girl the like everlasting elixir mm-hmm. of staying young forever and living forever and i'm just like i didn't you just say but she gives her thing? that potion to reverse it true that's t- she but does. again she, does. That's she doesn't realize like you just stunted this 13 year old and let me tell you i was not a rational 13 year old Oh, no, no. no. Like, I was a hellion at that age. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly I know this is an audio podcast, but you, sh- listeners, my oh. facial expression is one of, like flashback of torment. I was oh, yeah. a nightmare child. The fact, I mean, my parents didn't put up with me. That was part of the problem. I was a, I was a nightmare child at 13. There was. Mm-mm. I do have a question. If you were, if, so let's say, you know, Enchantress was real and she came into your bedroom right now. Um, Cause we're all in our bedroom. If you didn't know that listeners. Um, so I think we all are. I don't know. Where that no, was. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm on my like fancy chair in the living room. So just imagine a fancy chair, like a throne, like in Game of Thrones. That's what she's sitting on right now. Body of enemies at her feet. (laughs) But let's say Enchantress is real and came into your boudoir and she gave you a cupcake and was like, like your age right now, you could live forever as what you are right now. And like, she gives you another one. She's like, you could pick one other person to be with you. Would you take that? Or would you be like, get the fuck out of my face? Would yeah. I give it to my dog? <laughs> Listen. Uh, wait, wait, I mean, yeah. Can I give it you can give it to your dog. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, honestly, like, I feel like I'm at a mature point in my life. I, I definitely have, like, some, a lot still to go. But, like, I'll, if I could live forever with my dog, like, I'd do that. Dog's a living, a living being. I don't see why not. I wouldn't work for it. It's magic, you know. That should be great. If I was immortal, you know how much shit I could get done? All the books in the right? world. Right? <laughs> oh. Oh all my the, god, know, I wouldn't have to worry so much. Right. I, you know, I would take it. I would do it. Because, I mean, I'm 40. I'm in decently good health. And being able to be on that cusp, 
between well i'm old enough that people do respect me because of my age mm -hmm. um but i am not so old as to be easily dismissed mm -hmm. because at a certain age especially for women you're much more easily dismissed yeah uh, I, i'm in my prime right now i can literally just look at somebody i don't give a fuck you, you can talk about my weight my height my looks my whatever i'm 40 uh, my last fuck left last year so yeah, no, I think I'd take it. I think I'd take it. I'd do it. Nice. I was surprised. I thought one of you would at least say no. Honestly, you all said yes. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, would, I would keep that drink, like, in a very secure place. Because, I mean, I'm sure at some point you're just going to go, you know, it's been great, thanks. Yeah, because I don't want to live forever. I feel like living years. forever would be boring. Like, I've always said, if I became a vampire, I would willingly walk into the sun after 100 years. Because, like, living forever to me, that, it sounds boring. Like, I'm sorry to the people that want to live forever, but, like, part of, like, living forever is, like, you don't have, like, you, you start to get, like, you don't get, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. It's, like, all those, like, vampire shows you see where it's, like, the vampires become apathetic, and it's, like, mm -hmm. oh, um, I I've lived, I've loved, I've lost, whatever. But it's like, after a while, it just gets boring doing the same thing over and over again. Like, yeah, I'd love to travel the world and everything, but after that, like, I'm good. I, I think give me a thousand years and then give me the choice to either end it or have to do another thousand years and I'd be able to tell you. But like, uh, I mean, a hundred years is, is beautiful, but there's a lot of change I want to see and a lot of change I want to be able to help make. And a hundred years for the particular groups of people that I want to help is a That's very short fair. amount of time. So, uh, so we obviously all want to keep reading or have read it. So we like the story. So we'll be talking about it again. Um, for uh, one one last little key thing, since we're talking about these issues, I'd like to ask, what was everyone's like number one favorite thing out of these like six issues? Uh, Robbie, you go first. All right. Well, overall, I really love the uh, the character progression that Rainbow Rowell is taking these characters, and we really get to see, I would say, most of that with Kurt. And I really love to see this um, evolution with her, because ironically, even though she was a character that hadn't been around these past few years, we're seeing quite a bit of a lot of growth with her. And like one slight thing too that I really liked was. Um, us getting to see a little bit of Clara and that was nice because she was definitely a you know a member of the team for a while and so I do hope that they eventually show her again one day but um overall though I really do love um how Rainbow Rowell is approaching these characters and that yeah I agree I that was, I mean, Emma Rao really understands these characters and really gets them and gives them a, a voice that we haven't really seen before explored that way. What about you, Evelyn? Um, I really like the um the little bit that we get with Nico and her trying to like come to terms with her powers and still trying to figure out what her powers are and how like Wolverine, because we mention Wolverine all the time, how it hurts every time the staff goes in and out and how it is a part of her, but she doesn't understand it and she's trying so hard to understand it. And her arc with that, like I just really love that. Like, because we 
get these powers all the time in comic books, but I really like trying to like learn to have like understanding those power kind of story arcs is kind of like something that I really, really enjoy. And I think for Nico, it's definitely just really interesting because I'm always into like that goth girl too. So <laughs> nice. I, I just, I'll just say mine right now before, cause it's the same before mm-hmm. Raven does. Cause I, it's mine is the same with Nico. I, I'm not going to say anything that we obviously have read after this because it spoils stuff. Right, I just love her. Her arc in this whole series is my favorite. Um, I might be biased because she is my favorite character out of the Runaways and kind of the <laughs> reason why I read it. Um, but <laughs> still, I I feel like even though I want her to be more and do more magic stuff like she was doing in Avengers Academy or Avengers Arena, um, I still really enjoy this arc. And I think it's good for the character to have this like deep moment with her powers and just with Carolina as well, because we see, get to see two different like lesbian couples in this little arc and like get to see a big major kiss too. Comics are progressing. I'm so happy. Uh, Raven, what was your favorite moment or thing? Funny enough, honestly, I think it's Doombot. Nice. Doombot was one of my favorite. Well, and not and not just because. Oh yeah, that was some comedy. Like that was some levity that I honestly needed. Um, but also, it it's a great way to finally get more out of Victor because mm-hmm. you know Chase is like, yeah, I'm gonna put your body back together. He's like, oh, no, no, I'm good. It's good. And then you have Doombot who straight up just doesn't listen. He is he, he is Doom, and you know just does not listen and so victor ends up having to speak up more and talk more and really get the point across like no like seriously i'm afraid of my body i'm afraid of what i'm going through i have a lot of shit i need to work through and process through first so yeah i loved doombot for not just the levity but the fact that he really pushed victor's plight into the foreground and i really felt for him because it's like wow nobody is listening to what victor wants or what victor needs Mm -hmm. or what victor is consenting to they just went ahead and did what they wanted to made a body and you know like shove them on it and you know he he freaks out like it needed to happen and it was it was actually really well done with a a bot that you would expect to be a complete non-listening a-hole because he's he's doom doom so, yeah, he was one of my he was one of my favorites what i really love about the choice with doom bottom hearing is that shows right there that rainbow Rowell like did a shit ton of fucking research before writing this mm-hmm. like and you could tell with like many other things but even with Doombot, like and i really appreciate that that yeah. like it's very telling that she read every single appearance of every member mm-hmm. and different titles and i love that so much yeah oh god yeah (laughs) Yeah, i definitely agree 